Please open your, your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans. This morning we'll be looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. When I was a child, I was constantly injuring myself. Now, I could blame that on the fact that I was growing into my growth spurts and getting used to, to how my body was growing, but let's be honest, usually it was just because I was totally oblivious to what was going on around me. Thankfully, the Lord was good, and I was born into a family where my father was an emergency room physician, and that came in handy. So for instance, in seventh grade, I was running to go participate in a school band practice, and as I was running at full speed, I tripped over the curb, landed on my chin on the asphalt, and slid on my chin as it split open and it was pouring blood down. I still remember I was wearing a white shirt and it was soaked. You couldn't even see white anymore. It was just soaked through with red. I go to the office and they're like, we're going to have to send you home. And I said, no, no, don't worry. Call my dad. He'll fix it. My dad drives out, takes me out to the parking lot, uh, cleans it up, sews it up, gives me a new shirt and sends me back to practice. Uh, How about in ninth grade? Ninth grade, I was on the high school wrestling team, and during our winter practice, uh, my my partner and I were wrestling, and my kneecap, I should have given a disclaimer, uh, some disturbing images this morning in the sermon, Uh, my kneecap went from the front of my knee all the way to the back of my knee. My coach didn't know what happened. He's freaking out and said, call an ambulance, and I said, no, call my dad. My dad had showed up popped the knee back in place, was loading, us in, loading me into the car before the ambulance got there. They were all friends, and so he, it, was, it was all good. Uh, how about 10th grade? I uh, used to put my alarm clock on the other side of the room to make me actually get up to go get out of bed in the morning. Well, that one particular morning when I was in 10th grade, I was running across the room so I didn't wake the rest of the family with my alarm clock. I tripped over my desk chair. I landed face first onto my desk onto a pair of open nail clippers. And I went, ow, and I put my hand where I hit, and I could feel all the way to the inside of my mouth through my lip. And it was time to call Dad again. You know, it wasn't really until I was a father, and I was sitting with my boys in the emergency room and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, did I realize the tremendous blessing it was to grow up with an emergency room doc as a father. I wished I realized that more then, so that then I could have been more thankful. Then I could have been more appreciative. You know, Paul's helping us come to a similar realization now about the tremendous blessings and benefits that come with now knowing that we are justified by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. One day we're going to realize the fullness of this, right? One day in, in heaven we'll recognize the fullness of the blessings of what it means to be justified by Christ. But Paul says we don't have to wait for then to realize the fullness of that. In light of what Christ has done for us in his death for our sin and his resurrection for our justification, Paul says in Romans 5, he says we should be able to answer this question. Do we really understand the tremendous benefits and blessings of God's gracious salvation? Paul wants to understand in the midst of situations that often would cause us to forget that we can be absolutely assured of these heavenly blessings and benefits that are in Christ. So let's look at our text this morning, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and let's see how the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, would give 
us four such assurances that come from God's gracious justification. First, we see that justification brings us assurance of peace. Look at verse 1 with me, where Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts by saying, therefore, which means that we should ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Right? So therefore, in light of everything that Romans 1 through 4 has said, it's taught us about our sinful rebellion against God, that no one is righteous, that no one is right before God, but that God has provided for us a righteousness outside of us, uh, outside of what we could earn or what we could achieve. God gives us the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith in the Messiah who died for our sin and was raised for our justification. So now, Paul says, those who have faith in Christ Jesus, now that we know that we're justified, that we're declared righteous before God, since that is true, therefore, that produces some tremendous results in the lives of those who have faith in Christ. You see, in Romans chapter 5, there's a huge shift. Romans 1 through 4, Paul's laying out his argument. He's, he's using this argumentative style of, and arguing for the truth of the gospel. And there's a shift here in chapter 5, where Paul shifts to this pastoral tone is in encouraging the church with the, with the results of the gospel. See, he's not going to talk about the benefits of, the salvation, of salvation in the sense of, look at all the benefits you can get if you sign up for this now. It's not that sort of benefits. He's talking about the benefits that we should know we already have if we're in Christ. Notice that Paul shifts from a you, primarily he's talking to you or they in chapters 1 through 4, and now he's talking about a we. He's using this we language here in, in chapter 5. He's talking to those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, and he's seeking to encourage us. He's seeking to encourage you and you and me with the assurances we can have that come from this justification by faith. And, and let's look at this first assurance. He says, first, we have what? Peace. We have peace with God. Now, what does Paul mean when he says we have peace with God? See, when we use the word in peace in English, we usually think of peace in a negative sense. And by that, I mean that we think that peace is the absence of something. To be at peace with someone is to have the absence of hostility, right? So to be at peace with a country is to not be at war with them. That's, that tends to be how we think of that word. And that is true. That's part of what Paul's saying. But that's only, that's only part of it. There's so much more. Paul's going to go into this more detail in a few verses that we'll look at next week. But let's look at there real quick. Look down at verse 10. If you're in chapter 5, look down at verse 10, where Paul says, For if while we were enemies, so we were at war, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So peace, part of peace, this idea of peace, is that we are no longer enemies of God. Paul says that we were self-declared enemies of God. We had declared war upon God in our rebellious sin, and that has, it, it used to alienate us from God, the God who created us and loves us. But peace is more than just saying we're no longer enemies with God. It's not just this negative of not being enemies. Verse 10 says that peace is not just not being enemies. Peace is being reconciled to God. Having a, that idea of reconciled is having a completely restored relationship with God. See, this peace isn't like if you have a friend 
and, and you have some sort of fight or some sort of conflict or some sort of falling out. And so you guys have this broken relationship. And you guys talk and you say, let's, let's not let this continue to be a problem in our life. So you agree to kind of move past that, that, that thing that you were fighting about. And you've moved past it, but your friendship's never really the same again. Right? It's never quite what it used to be. That, that, that you're still, you're, you're kind of friends. You're more like frenemies where you're not at odds, but you're not really friends completely like you were before. That's not the type of peace that God's talking, or that Paul's talking about with God here. Paul's talking about that when we have peace with God, we have a completely restored, reconciled relationship with God. So this peace with Jesus, peace through Jesus Christ is not just about the absence of hostility, but also about the renewed presence of a friendship with God. How do I know that? How do I know that I'm at peace with God? How do I know that when God looks at me, that there's no sin separating my relationship with him? How do I know that that's what God sees? This peace, we see, we see it because of verse 1. It reminds us that our peace, it's not about what we do. It's not about I'm good with God this day and I'm not good with God that day because it all depends on if I'm having a good day or a bad day. That Jesus accomplished that peace for us through his life, death, and resurrection, so that we can have assurance of our position as completely reconciled to God. So here's the point that Paul's making, that God's justification in Christ assures us, we can look back to that as proof that we have peace with God. I remember a, a young adult visiting our youth group at this church, and, and, and I remember sitting down with him and, and saying, do you want me to explain the whole story of the Bible? And it relies on this idea of this relationship with God. And he said, yes. And in fact, if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to say welcome. We're so glad that you're here this morning. And I want to do that for you this morning. I want to just, let me sum up the whole Bible in just about a minute here for you. You probably think, great, all right. Because the Bible is a story here. That's a story that starts with God who created the universe. And he created especially man and woman in his own image. And he loved us, and he provided for us in a perfect garden paradise. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God, which the Bible calls sin, by, by not honoring and thanking God. But they instead tried to live as their own gods of their lives, rebelling that God is no longer God, but that they could be their own gods. And so that their relationship with God was broken by sin. And that's what we see throughout the Bible is the separation of God and his people by our sin. In fact, as we look at all the brokenness of the world today, they're just reminders of that brokenness and a reflection of that brokenness of our relationship with God. As we look at the disasters of nature, as we look at the conflict between mankind, that's a reflection of what our sin did in our relationship with God. And the message of the Bible is about God taking the initiative to reconcile us with him. And see, the good news is that although we were self-declared enemies of God, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we could never live and to die on the cross, not for what he did, but he died on the cross for our sins in our place as our substitute. And he rose from the dead. It's a demonstration of that justification, of that, that, that forgiveness and that reconciliation that is available as a gift, as a gift of grace, so that God 
is this gift of grace. He would give this gift of eternal life to anyone who would turn from their sin in repentance and turn to Jesus in faith. And he offers that gift to, to all of us. In fact, if you're here this morning and you have not received that gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we would love to tell you more about that. We'd love to tell you about how you can have your sins forgiven, how you can be reconciled with the God who loves you. Please don't leave this morning without having your questions answered. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards. I'd love to meet you and, 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 and talk with you about, these, about this, this gift of grace you can have through Christ. Because this is what it's about. And in fact, my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, that this is also for us, this, this reminder of this reconciliation. It actually has an incredible impact as we think about our life together as the church. You see, the whole argument of Romans is headed towards Romans 12 through 15. It's taught, and the argument is this. All that we're talking about in the first part of Romans is talking about this vertical peace we have with God this vertical forgiveness of sin, this vertical grace that God's given us so that we are reconciled vertically to God. And then he shifts in Romans 12 through 15 where Paul's headed with the book is that our vertical peace with God should result in a horizontal peace and reconciliation with the body of Christ. That's where Romans, that's the argument of Romans where it's headed. In fact, our passage that Dave read this morning from Ephesians 2 states that even clearer. It, Paul says there, if we are reconciled to God, then we demonstrate that as we are reconciled with one another in the body of Christ. You see, the gospel breaks down cultural and ethnic boundaries to make one new man, one new creation, one new body, the church of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile, black and white, boomers and millennials, white collar and blue collar, Jesus reconciled us as one church. Now, that's not to say that we're all the same, that we're not, we don't all look the same and think the same and act the same. That's not what it says. But it's saying that the gospel transforms our identity so that as a church, there is a diversity. But because of the gospel and the reconciliation that brings, there is a unity in that diversity. And that has applications, Right? That's one of the reasons that we don't have different church services for different styles because Jesus reconciled people with different preferences and different styles into one church. And through the way that we love one another, especially those in the church that we are covenantally committed to, as we love people that are different than us, as we work out this, the, 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 the differences and the, 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 pref the, the conflict that comes from differences and preferences, as we live out the, that reconciliation despite the differences, despite the, 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 the challenges that makes, we display to the world about the, the peace and the reconciliation that the world so desperately wants but can never seem to achieve. We are meant to display that. As Ephesians 3 would say, we display the manifold wisdom of God to the, the physical world and to the spiritual world because of what God has done in this reconciliation in his church. So justification assures us of peace with God. Second, justification also gives us assurance of grace. Look at the, look at the beginning of verse 2 there where Paul goes on to say, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So the second result that comes from justification is we have obtained access. 
This word is used only two times in the New Testament. But we see this in other literature of the time where this referred to gaining a certain standing or a certain position of status, usually to come into the presence of royalty. This was used in literature to talk about King Cyrus, and not anyone could just come and just approach the king. You had There's certain people, though, that had access to the king. We use the same kind of term today, right? We talk about those who have access to the president, right? You can't just say, hey, I got something to tell the president. I'm going to walk in there and tell him. It doesn't work that way, right? But there are certain people who can do that. They have access, guaranteed access, anytime access to the president as a privilege that comes with their status of their position in, in the government, right? That's the type of access that Paul's talking about. But it's interesting. Here's what's really interesting. I, I, think, I think it's interesting. In Ephesians, Paul talks about having access to God, to a person, like, like the language is used. But look at verse 2 here. <clears throat> Paul says we have obtained access... <clears throat> Not to a person. You see that? But we have access by faith into what? Into grace. God's justification by faith has given us a new position, a new status, a new standing, where we have continual and guaranteed access, yes, to the person of God, which we'll see, you can see in Ephesians, but we have that continual and guaranteed access, especially to God's grace. You see, sometimes as a Christian, we forget our need for grace. And Paul's reminding us here that our entire Christian life is completely dependent on grace. We don't just start our relationship with God by grace, but we live out that relationship with God day by day by grace as well. See, we're not just initially saved by grace. That God, I was a sinner, God saved my grace, but now it's up to me to try to do the best I can with my Christian life. That's not the, that's not the description of the Christian life in the New Testament. The New Testament reminds us that we're both saved by grace and we continue to stand in grace so that whatever good we accomplish in our lives, in our church, in our ministry, in our families, in our work, that's, that's evidence of God's gracious work in us. And as Christians, we tend to forget that. We need a grace that God saved us, and now look what I'm doing for God. And Paul says, no, we continually stand in grace. We need to remember, the, yes, we need to remember the, the, the song, the first verse of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the, so the sound that God saved a wretch like me. That's true. That's God's grace as he saved us. But there's another verse to that, that song as well that we would sing sometimes. The grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Where's my assurance? Where's my confidence? It's not in my own strength. It's not by my own abilities. It's in the grace of God. One of the greatest gifts from God is that right now and guaranteed throughout the rest of my Christian life, we have this constant access to his grace. How do we know that? Paul says because God's justification in Christ assures us of that constant access to God's grace. We need to remember that. We need to remember that we are called to stand in grace, to, to, to continue to lean on God's grace, to continue to, to come to God for his grace. So in times of need, Hebrews 4 would say, we can draw near, not just if you need, but draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And we can draw near, not if, okay, I had my quiet times this week, and, and I shared my faith this week, and I went to church this week, so now I know I have access to God's throne of grace. No. We have access to God's throne of grace, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. 
And then when we look at our lives and we see the, the fruit and the growth and the blessings in our life and our ministry and our work and our homes, we don't become prideful because we recognize it's God's grace working through me that accomplished these things. So it's not glory be to me, but glory and thanks be to God. And again, I'm going to do this over and over and over, that we remember not just this passage, but how this fits into the letter of Romans as a whole, that the letter of Romans was written with very specific applications in mind, that, that as recipients of grace, we show grace to one another as a unified body of Christ, that by, by show, one of the things is realizing that we're all under sin and we're all saved by grace, that we're all equal in our dependence on grace, that, that matters as we live out our lives together is, is, is a unified body of Christ as recipients of grace. That's where Paul's going in, in, in especially chapter 12, 13, 14, 15. And then also we see at the beginning and the end of his gospel that as recipients of grace, we are those then who take that message of grace to those who don't have it to those who haven't heard it. And, and yes, that includes those that, that God has placed around us who need that message of grace, who need that message of forgiveness, that, that don't know Christ in our, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, and in our schools. But, but also, as Paul says, it's, it's also beyond our own little bubbles. That, 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 that grace that we've received would motivate us then to participate in, 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 in partnering with those who would bring that message of grace to a needy world. And as, as we see as Romans, is this missionary document that, that, that Paul is raising support and, and partnerships for his missionary endeavor out of, not out, of, not out of, 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 of guilt, not out of shame, not out of, oh, you're a church, you should do this, but out of because of what grace has done in our lives, wouldn't we want others to know that message of grace as well? So justification assures us of grace, or a peace with God and access to grace. Thirdly, justification in Christ also assure, gives us assurance of future glory. Look at the rest of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Such a short little phrase, right? We've read it. I'm sure you've read it. I've read it over and over and over. But we need to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to rejoice in hope of the glory of God? There's some difficulties with this verse. The first difficulty is what does the verb mean? What is this verb here? The English Standard Version, which I just read, translate this verse as rejoice. The New American Standard would translate this as exalt. It's that those, those words in English give the idea kind of an emotional reaction, right? This emotional action of, reaction of joy or jubilation. And that is part of the verb here. That's part of what this saying, but it's not the full picture. If you have a, a New International Version, the NIV is probably the most consistent in the translation of this word, that throughout the New Testament, the NIV translates every time this word in Greek shows up, the New Testament translates this as boast, as boasting. And that's getting a little closer to what Paul's talking about here. See, the New Testament idea of boasting is the idea of taking pride in something or putting your confidence in something. In fact, it's putting your confidence in something in so, such a way, this is where the ESV goes, that you find your joy in that thing. I am so confident in this, I find my joy there. I rejoice in that. That's where you get this idea of rejoicing in that verb. And sometimes that boasting is sinful we see in the New Testament, is you find your confidence in yourself or your confidence in other people. If you try to find your confidence in our power or our ability or our wisdom, the New Testament says that's just pure vanity. But 1 Corinthians 1 says that the, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's the same word that's being used here. 
It means that if we're going to place our confidence somewhere, if we're going to place our hopes somewhere, if we're going to place our joys somewhere, it should be in God. And that's what Paul's talking about in this idea here of this boasting as confidence. It's such boasting and such confidence that results in rejoicing. In fact, I think that that kind of gives the, the, the sum up of the idea. I think the New Living Translation does this really well. It translates it that we are confident and joyful. Those are the two aspects of this verb. We are confident and joyful. So we're trying to, we're getting the idea of what this means here. So the result of justification is that we boast, that we are confident and joyful. Confident and joyful in what? In hope. Now here's another word that can have some different meanings. So let's make sure we're all on the same page here. See, hope that Paul's talking about here is not the hope that maybe something might happen. I sure hope this happens. I have no certainty if it'll happen or not, but I sure hope it happens. Like some of you here in this room are probably saying, I hope the Niners win the Super Bowl next week. Others in this room might be saying, I hope the Chiefs win the Super Bowl in this week, which I'll take us back to that unity in Christ that I talked about before. But that's the sort of hope that Paul's not talking about here. This, I hope, I have no guarantees of it. Neither side really does, by the way. Um, that I have no guarantees that's going to happen, but I sure hope that happens. That's not the hope that Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a hope that is a guaranteed hope, a certain hope of that, that I know this is going to happen, and that brings me hope. It's kind of like saying, uh, uh, man, I'm sure glad that last week is over because I, we're starting a new, a new week, and that gives me hope. Right? Because I know that this, there's something new about this week. Or maybe even better, this idea of, I have the hope that Jesus is coming back as promised. When I say that, it's not saying, I sure hope he does. I have no guarantee, but maybe he will. No, we know that Jesus will fulfill his promise. We know he's coming back. And the New Testament uses that word hope to describe it. So Paul's talking about here this hope that we have that brings certainty, that brings confidence, that brings joy is, 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 is this, this, this hope in the glory, that kind of hope in the glory of God. Well, what is, what is this glory of God that we're to experience? Clearly, when Paul talks about this, he's usually talking about this idea of this future glory, this future glorification, that there is a day when we are going to experience the moral perfection of sharing in God's glory on the last day. The glory that was lost by Adam in paradise, the glory that's been corrupted and by, the, by the brokenness of this world, we have the hope, the certain hope that this glory will be restored to us in the new heavens and the new earth. See, we have the assurance. We have the hope. We have the certainty that brings joy that there's going to be a glorious future when everything that is broken is going to be restored. The brokenness that we experience in our struggle with sin, it's going to be over as God completes his work of holy sanctification of our life. There's no more battle with sin. There's no more battle with the flesh. There's no more battle with the world. There's no more battle with the devil. It's just glory. There's going to be a day when the brokenness and relationships are going to be no more. There's no more conflict. There's no more experience of people sinning against you. There's no more abuse. There's no more victimization. There's just glory. There's a day when the brokenness in our natural world will be no more. One of the things that, that, that just bends my mind is Revelation talks about work in heaven. And you think, oh, work. But it's talking about a work in heaven without any toil and without any frustration. 
And we have no concept of that, right? I, I mean, I remember talking to some high schoolers when I was a youth pastor here, and they get their first job, and they're complaining about it. And I say, there's a reason they call work, work, right? But there's a work, there is a work that's going to be free of all frustration and toil. And we can't even imagine that, but that's true. And then there's no more, then the natural world will be restored. There's no more natural disasters. There's no more droughts. There's no more fire season. There's no more sickness. There's no more cancer. There's no more death. There's just glory. That's what our hope's in. John pictures this so well in the description of the new heavens and new earth in Revelation chapter 21, where he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what it means to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That, that we see that God's justification in Christ assures us that we will experience that future, for, that future glorification for those in Christ. Each of us then needs to ask ourselves, do we have such assurance? Do we have such confidence? If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning, would you, let me ask you again, would you like to know how you can be certain, how you can have assurance that if you were to die today, that you would spend eternity in heaven with God in glory? Don't leave this morning without asking someone how you can have that. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, Paul says that when we realize the fact of Christ's death, the fact of his reconcil- uh, resurrection, the fact of his justification, that provides us with that assurance. Therefore, we have a hope that's not, maybe it's going to happen. It might happen. I sure hope it does happen. But a hope that says, I have the certain hope that because of what Christ has done, I'm destined for glory. So we boast in that hope as we shine as lights, giving that hope to others. We place our confidence in that hope. We don't place our confidence in ourselves but what God has done for us. We rejoice in that hope as we find that promise of future glory, our joy and our treasure. So finally, let's, let's see Paul say one more thing here. That we're assured of glory, not just in the future, but we're also, in the present, also assured of hope. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Paul goes on to say, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. See, Paul assumes that our hopes are going to be for the future, that our hopes are going to be for heaven. But what about right now? What about this week that is anything but heaven for some of us? When life's full of suffering and trials and affliction and troubles. What about when life's full of health problems or life's full of suffering from family drama or life's full of suffering from grief and loss or there's problems at work you're just not very excited to have to deal with this week, or there's difficulties at home, or there's difficulties with your finances. What about the everyday general state of suffering and troubles that we face in the world now? Paul makes a shocking statement here. He is meant to shock us with this statement. Paul says that we as believers can boast, boast, can confidently hope and rejoice even in the pressures and afflictions we face, he says, right now. He, he's trying to get our attention. If you're, if you're not paying attention, that Paul's trying to say, this is crazy. He's trying to get our attention with this statement. He wants us to ask the question, how? 
How is this possible? How can we actually rejoice in sufferings? How does that work? That's why he starts to explain this. He says it's possible because we know something. This is not just life's full of roses. I'm just going to think about the sunny side of the street. He says, no, we are, are knowing something. We're remembering something. We're recognizing something about how our good and sovereign God wants to use these times of suffering in our lives. We can rejoice and have hope because we know that suffering produces endurance. When, when God takes us through times of trouble, he gives us endurance and perseverance that helps us grow stronger to have even more endurance when the next time those troubles come. And then we can rejoice and, and have hope because we know that that endurance is going to produce character. Or I like how the New American Standard translates this as proven character. This endurance gives proof and validation to the character that we have in us. You know, as I was thinking about this idea and how to illustrate this, I, I thought about Dave Miller. He, he's downstairs this morning, but if you talk to Dave Miller after church, and if you talk to him for any length of time, he's probably going to tell you about the next uh, half marathon or marathon he's going to run. And, and in fact, he'll even say, yeah, I'm injured right now, but I'm still going to run it. And, and, and he plans on running it, and he fully expects and has full confidence that he's going to run and finish these races, even if he has knee problems or ankle problems or whatever he's got. And, 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 you, and you talk to him, and if you don't know him, you think, what? You're going to run 26.1 miles with a knee problem and have confidence that, of course, you're going to finish it. How does he have such confidence? Because he's already done it. Again and again and again. He, he told me when I was talking to him, asked permission to use him as an illustration here, that he's run 18 full marathons and 19 half marathons, several of those while he was injured. See, he's validated and he's proven his ability to endure those races. He knows that he can do it because he's done it. So even if he's having joint problems, even if he's having afflictions, he has the full confidence and knowledge that he's going to finish. That's what Paul's talking about here that there is a type of proved or validated character we have that, we, that, that gives us assurance from that. And this proven character then produces hope. Not just, I hope I might make it, but this certainty. It produces this assurance. How? Because when we see the spiritual endurance and the proven character that come from those difficult situations, we have objective evidence we can look at to see God is really changing my life. God is really there with me. God is really fulfilling his promises. It shows that we are really justified by faith and that we are really destined for glory. You see, the endurance and character that our suffering produces, it produces the hope that we have for future glory that means that heaven is not just an illusion for me. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just some sort of religious opiate that's given to me for false hope. We have a certain hope that the God who justified us is the God who strengthens us through those sufferings is the same God who will assuredly finish that work and bring us to glory. Every suffering that you go through is an opportunity for God to remind you of that. If Paul were here, he'd likely ask us, what do you tend to think of in your times of suffering? What's in your head? When you read stories where, where you see different people, personalities, take aggressive and biased positions against our Christian faith, is, do you see it as an opportunity to get angry? Is it an opportunity to get bitter? Or is it an opportunity to rejoice? Rejoice? Rejoice. 
because our sufferings in this world remind us that our future home is in glory. When, when, what do you do when you're struggling, struggling with difficulties in the situation where God has providentially placed you? You're, you're struggling with your marriage, or you're struggling with your singleness, or you're struggling with, with, with relationships in the church where God's placed you. Are you tempted to give in to despair? Do you fantasize about how life could be different? Or do you see that God is, is allowing these things as an opportunity for him to help you demonstrate perseverance and demonstrate proven character to increase your assurance and hope for glory? That this is not something necessarily to run from, but something to see how God will bring about his good work through it. What about what kind of counsel and advice do you give to your fellow Christians when they're struggling with their jobs, or they're struggling with their living situations, or they're struggling with their circumstances. Now, sometimes it's wise to look for a new job, or to look for a new city, or to look for new circumstances. Sometimes that's wise. But we need to also remember that difficulties don't always mean run away and look for something else. Paul says right here that in difficulties, God may be bringing those difficulties as an opportunity in those difficult circumstances to produce endurance, to produce character, to produce something so much more important than what you do or where you live. It produces assurance of where you'll be eternally. Isn't that so much more important? We need to remember that our justification in Christ means that we can rejoice in our sufferings. And I hope that we would do that, we rejoice ourselves, and we'd help others to do the same. I've said this before, but as much as I've loved studying in seminary, which I've, I've done, I'm still doing, and I've studied Greek, and I'm studying theology, and I'm studying scripture, I, I'm so thankful that I've been able to, 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 to learn those lessons while being a part of this church. Because as much as I've learned from my classes, I've learned just as much from the fellowship of saints in this church. And I would say especially what I've learned from the saints who endure suffering. You see, it's one thing to look at verses 3 through 4, and you can break down the grammar and break down the syntax and break down the theology of the verse, which I love to do. But it is something so much more when you see these verses lived out in front of you as a reminder to you these saints who remind you by their lives of the truthfulness of these verse, verses of how God can work his good even through suffering. If they keep the right mentality, if they remember this. I'm so thankful of learning these lessons through my brothers and sisters like Sharon Stoll and Dave Morrow and Lee Davis. That we can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, I want to point out one more thing about these verses before we move on. Notice here that none of this is conditional. At least it's not presented as conditional. Paul doesn't say here, if we endure, then that produces character. If we have character, then that produces hope. Now, I would agree that the New Testament says we have to choose to respond appropriately. But when Paul's teaching this here right now for us, he's leaving out the if-then. He's presenting this as a fact. Did you notice that in the text? Paul assumes that for genuine believers, for those who have been justified by faith in Christ, ultimately the character and the endurance we need is not going to come from our own efforts. 
It's gonna, not going to come from our own strength. It's going to be there from the grace, by the grace of God. This, is so, this verse is so similar to Romans 8, that those who God calls, he surely justifies, and those he justifies, he will surely glorify, so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. There's, there's so much parallel here. So that, that, that we can have confidence and rejoice even in our sufferings. Why? Why do we know that? Because of, of the justification we have in Christ that assures us that our sufferings are God's instruments to strengthen us in hope for future glorification. And why is that hope so important? Look at our last verse for this morning, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, this could be talking about a present shame or disappointment, as some translations have. I think that this verb also can be a future, which I think is the right translation. The Christian Standard Bible, the New Living, translates it as a future. This hope will not disappoint us. This is how the Old Testament authors spoke about this, especially throughout the Psalms, that those who hope in God will not on the last day be shamed or disappointed before the judgment of God. So this hope that is produced by and proven by our sufferings will not disappoint us on the final day of judgment. You see, none of us have had to stand before God on the final day of judgment yet, right? We, we, haven't, we haven't been there. So how do we know what God's verdict's going to be? How do we know that my hope in Christ won't disappoint me on that day? Paul says, because, because you know with certainty that your hope won't disappoint because you have objective proof as you look at your endurance and you look at your character that, that's demonstrated by God's work in your suffering, which is a demonstration then of the proof of God's love for you through the Holy Spirit. You know that God will bring you to glory on that day because of the love that he shows you today. We're going to talk a lot more about God's love next week in verses 6 through 11. But just as, we, as Paul briefly ends here in this, how all of this is a reflection of God's love. Let's reflect on what he says about God's love. God's love is not just given to you a little bit. Kind of like with my boys at Christmas, they, they, they started loving eggnog. And so I'll give them a little bit because if you give them too much, bad things happen. <laughs> That's not how God gives out love, right? He says that God's love, I love this language, is poured out abundantly. You know what that means in the Greek? It means it's poured out abundantly into our hearts, and we experience that love through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have the confident hope, the blessed assurance that God will bring us to glory. I think one of the general aspects of childhood is that kids just take so much for granted, don't they? In the last two months in the Shigio household, we celebrated the birthdays for both of our boys as well as Christmas, so there were a lot of presents recently. And it always amazes me how... Often when my boys get a new present, they look at the present, wow, and they immediately turn the present over to look at the back of the box and all the other toys in that set, and they say something like, when do we get those? <laughs> it drives me crazy. <laughs> Opportunity for my sanctification, I'll tell you what. They don't even stop to consider how amazing it was of the gift they've received, and they're looking, when do we get these? Isaac's starting to get that. He actually started repeating with me with this common response. Be thankful for what you have, not focus on what you don't have. Right, buddy? Yes. <laughs> but in some ways, we're the same childish people we were as kids, aren't we? We take the grace of God for granted. 
So as Paul would walk us through the gospel in his letter to the church in, to the Rome, in his letter to the church in Rome, as he unpacks this wonderful grace of God that justifies us through faith in Christ, he would ask us, "Do you really understand? And more than understand, understand in a way that you would cherish the benefits and the blessings of God's gracious salvation, or are you distracted by the back of the package?" So let's rejoice in the blessed assurance we have in Christ. Let's appreciate that God's justification in Christ assures us that we have peace with God. Let's be thankful that God's justification in Christ assures us that we have constant access, guaranteed access to God's grace. Let's rejoice that God's justification in Christ assures us that we will experience future glorification. All that is broken will be restored. And let us have confidence that God's justification in Christ assures us that our sufferings are used by God as his instruments to strengthen us for future glorification. As we often sing, O blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, perched of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Father, we thank you. Thank you that you know that we need to be reminded that we are kids still who look at the back of the package. And Lord, you want us to cherish and embrace all that you've given us of your grace, of that justification that we have in Christ. Let us cherish that. Let us delight in that. Let us cherish and delight in such a way that, that it actually would overflow into, into the way we live our lives and the way that we live our lives in the community of this church and the way that we live our lives is those who would seek to be salt and light to the lost. And this would be all for your glory as the one who's shown us such grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.